This is Supply Chain Radio. I'm Matt Gunn, joined today by Richard Barnett, Vice President of Industry Solutions at GT Nexus. Hello, Richard. Hi, Matt. How are you? Doing well. We're here at the end of 2015 and going into 2016, and of course, every time the calendar year turns over, we want to look at what's ahead. Let's take a look at manufacturing, and specifically the manufacturing supply chain. What are some of the initiatives that you see manufacturers looking to do in 2016 and beyond? Matt, I think it's interesting. You know, the work is never done. Every time there's an innovation or a new capability that seems to be being brought to the market by an industry leader, for example, it feels that in supply chain, it's always hard, complex, and never-ending, right, in a sense. But I do think that there's a few areas that we can highlight and predict in our crystal ball as key themes of focus, sort of uh, additional innovation opportunities and investment where we're going to see some maybe some breakthrough performances or some highlighted new approaches that are going to be taken from probably some of the industry leaders that we may know and love in our key markets in manufacturing. The first area that comes to mind that I see very much across multiple industries within manufacturing is this need for real-time demand fulfillment that's integrating supply chain, logistics, marketing, and production or manufacturing, and not just manufacturing that they make themselves, but actually across their suppliers. That's a pattern that we're seeing across different industries. And those who are getting this right are actually seeing a massive competitive advantage in how they're going to market and the benefits that it achieves in those areas. Right. You hear all the time buzzwords like supply chain agility or being responsive in the supply chain. What you're talking about here is actually putting the wheels to the ground and making changes by using data very intelligently and working from a network perspective with your entire ecosystem of suppliers. It's getting out of your own way cross-functionally, right? So a classic challenge in the consumer products industry is that marketing will come up with a trade promotion that they want to launch. You know, maybe it's an end-of-year holiday season promotion, but they don't tell anyone in manufacturing or the suppliers that all of a sudden there's this ton of ad spend or end-of-aisle displays in a store, you know, the retail partners that they're going to emphasize. And so the getting tighter coordination inside the enterprise, if you will, around marketing, sales, around the promotion plans, and then making sure that everyone understands that maybe those shipments need to be prioritized, or we think about the visibility to our key suppliers and making sure they understand that this is a bit of a demand spike, but it has a big return. Maybe it's more profitable if it's done right. And so that's been an ongoing challenge and issue. I think what's shifted now, though, is that so many companies are looking for flexibility in their network where they're partnering or they've outsourced some elements of either their manufacturing or their logistics, or they've got third-party relationships that they want to co-sell together. And that orchestration now has raised the bar to a whole nother level. But what's interesting is that when companies look at that problem as simply being, let's just get everyone on the same page with a single source of truth around order, shipments, and inventory and demand, wherever it is in the network, and then make quick moves, That actually is driving a lot more agility because we've taken an outside-in perspective and we're not worried about, you know, which department owns the thousand-line spreadsheet that's got the plan in it and then that not being thrown over the wall via email to the, you know, production manager. Everyone actually has to get on the same page, right, to do that. Because as soon as you step outside your enterprise, you really have to solve this problem of translating, sharing the right information at the right time. So you're going to see that pattern in key industries. We see it in fashion apparel today with fast fashion leaders. We're seeing it in you know new innovation fulfillment models for big brands and consumer products, uh, particularly in food and beverage, moving into kind of omni-channel models, creating, for example, subscription 
food offers where you can get samples of the new products that are being innovated. That's brand new, right? For big brands that we've know and love have never done that before. And a lot of the innovation is being driven by these smaller, nimbler entrants into the market that are challenging and disrupting, again, consumer behaviors and expectations. So that's going to be a big theme. So I think depending on the industry, we look at high tech, we look at consumer products, look at apparel. I can identify today some leaders in that area, but I know more and more innovation is going to be happening in 2016 in that area. Absolutely. And on a lot of those themes, I mean, of course, no one wants to sit on too much inventory. They don't want to have too many write-downs either. So getting smarter with your retail partners or with your suppliers to make sure that the right amount is there at the right time can make a big difference on margins. And of course, when you hit the year end or someone's fiscal year end, that's going to make a difference to your shareholder value too. Absolutely. A second area I see is in reshoring. We've heard a lot of discussion around, I don't know, the death of the U.S. manufacturing the unbelievable growth of China, right, as the world's manufacturer, you know, over time. That story rings somewhat true if you look at the broad arc of what's happened over the last 20 to 30 years. If you look more recently about what's shifting and happening, it's a very interesting story of much more targeted decisions being made around changing the source of supply, sometimes bringing in manufacturing capacity into a region, sometimes understanding that the cost profiles for decisions to invest in manufacturing in a specific region, say in Asia, that those cost profiles are changing, right? The actual labor costs, et cetera, are going up. And then looking at where there are new innovation centers and supplier centers where there's great economies of scale, but also knowledge around that specific industry area. So in some ways, you could say, you know, China's labor costs could grow by 30 to 40 percent. And in the electronics industry, particularly in southern China and Guangzhou and in Shenzhen regions, you would never actually move outside of that market. The reason why is when Apple wants to launch a new iPhone and they need a labor force to do the finishing and for the big launch of somewhere along the lines of two to three hundred thousand workers to do the final assembly in a burst capacity model, and they want to be able to be vertically integrated so all the suppliers are all co-located and they all know exactly what to do as they kind of innovate and bring these new products to market with these really short product life cycles. Rebuilding or reinventing that kind of center zone of excellence is almost impossible to do. But in other cases, you know, nearshoring or reshoring back to, say, Mexico for North America or going to Eastern Europe versus Asia for fulfilling the rest of the needs of the European market, for example, is a really smart move. A lot of that investment is, has happened. And you can see the swings where manufacturing growth is happening on a regional basis. And the advantages of that are that when you reshore, you typically have around 40, on average, 49, 50% reduction in delivery lead times and about a 30 to 40% improvement in overall on-time delivery accuracy, right? So you have a more reliable service level. You have reduced lead time to market typically, just physically. It's maybe on rail and truck versus on ocean. And that can give you some significant strategic advantages in time to market for new product introductions or for service levels. So you'll see a lot more of this very careful decision-making where global manufacturers or OEMs are going to be making incremental adjustments to their inbound supply chain rather than the bigger, bigger shifts that we saw where everyone was going to certain markets and then playing recovery 
on the cost or the lead time offsets of making those moves. Now, does that have implications on, say, the way that they're doing transportation? Because it would seem to me that, on the one hand, you might be closer to the market that you're selling to, so you could gain some efficiencies there, but still your suppliers are going to be all over the world. What effect does that have on transportation of goods? That's the other part of reshoring that doesn't get enough attention, which is, sure, at face value, if you shift from I build in China and I ship it to uh, LA or Long Beach, that lead time is going to go from weeks to, say, you know, a day or a few days or a week if I had that manufacturing capacity and just in Mexico, let's say, and I just shipped it cross-border right into California. The problem is you got to look at what's the inbound supplier lead time into those locations and what is that variability. And if you think logically about you know, it's great to co-locate my finished assembly or my finished product work, but if I have a thousand components that go into that product, right, all of a sudden I've created a huge amount of risk and variability because of all those suppliers that need to supply those key components to build that product. And that's why you're going to see more moves that also, if they say reshore bend to Mexico or into Eastern Europe, for example, you'll see hubs that develop where you have supplier logistics hubs that are used to kind of help orchestrate those movements from those suppliers and allow the option for some suppliers to have co-location of their own plants, maybe if they want to invest and have a lot more efficient movement of the inbound supply into those regions. So when a reshoring decision is made, you've got to look end-to-end at the total supply chain. You've got to think about end-to-end variability and lead time and supplier capacity or risk to make and follow those moves. So increasingly, I would say that what's happening is that the silo thinking of, I handle my transportation or my logistics differently for ocean than I do truck, than I do rail or how I manage my cross-border trade is obviously as soon as those moves start happening, you have to have an integrated global approach. And that's, I think, an opportunity for some companies, but it's a challenge for others as well. Right. And and you do hear companies talk about this when they talk about their transportation strategies. They can no longer think about it as a supply chain. It is not a direct linear approach to the manufacturing and delivering and the selling of their goods. It is a much bigger network than that. Yeah, the silo mentality of kind of having a transportation owner in, in a, a department, let's say, right, that just looks at domestic for one country and then looks at international in a different group. And then those groups are not talking to or a part of sales and marketing and fulfillment functions because all they're measured on is cost. The big shift is happening where, no, it's important that everyone's on the same page. They need to be looking at inventory. They need to look at service level. Sometimes it's segmented supply chains, right? So they got to think about what mode makes sense to cost to serve for the profile, the customer segment they're trying to support. And they all need to be looking at how to get to the root cause of variability and lead time reduction, which makes everything better. You know, you improve customer service levels, you hold less inventory, and you may be using different transportation modes, which are a little bit more costly, but it actually drives much greater efficiency and reliability in the overall supply chain. So I think that's a big thing that we'll see a lot more companies get global around their strategy. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of words around it, but talk only gets you so far with globalization. Uh, What else do you see coming on the horizon for the next year? Well, one area that I think is always interesting to look at is IoT. kind of comes with big data. And I'm not a fan of these kind of hype curve sort of over leverage of three-letter acronyms, right? But a lot of this is back to the future. A lot of this is relabeling something that's been around for a very long time. But... If you peel back that general big label, IoT, and you kind of look at, okay, what's happening, that is actually kind of interesting. 
I think where the story gets more refined and is more interesting to follow and track is sort of example use cases of where a device and a sensor are connected, not just with a an IP address into the Internet of Things, but actually the information or sensor information is used in the context of some business process or supply chain function, for example, that provides a new level or new capability that wasn't there before. So there's lots of examples of where we see innovation happening here and there. But one area that I think is, is very interesting is to get a more flexible way of understanding any conveyance when it's in motion, linking that sensor or monitoring data whether it's a beacon-oriented sort of flash signal every you know few hours or every day, or even tighter every 15 minutes, for example. And then using that to understand and orchestrate where predictive analytics can be applied to understand what's true variability in the lead time for, say, a route of a good over a certain mode or certain lane. So, you know, monitoring ocean, monitoring air, monitoring truck movements and rail movements in your real time, and then correlating that with other information about the item or the good itself. So bringing together, it allows for a very flat, relatively easy way to link what might be temperature monitoring inside of a specific container that is temperature controlled with the movement across that container, maybe across multi-modes, and then link that to chain of custody information that's important, say, in the pharmaceutical industry. All of a sudden, you're allowing for some flat use of fairly easy-to-access IoT signal information, but the key is to correlate it and back to a business process that actually reduces risks or improves customer service or improves security of those goods in transit, for example, to get to actually a business benefit. And I think what I'm constantly reading through the IoT hype you know, curve of new innovations, new examples, I'm constantly trying to think and link it back to what's the real business value. And I think in 2016, we're going to see more examples of moving out of pilot or experiment mode into real innovation by linking the IoT into other business functions. And I come from a supply chain background, so I think about those elements of it, but it obviously applies to many other parts of business processes or services uh, that are being provided to consumers or provided to businesses. Right. I mean, all of a sudden, the potential is to turn on a light switch and gain this view, not only of your processes, but of every piece of what you do. So I think that's pretty fascinating from the yeah. Internet of Things perspective. Okay, final question. If there was one thing on your wish list that companies could just do better within their supply chain, what would it be? I could tell you what everyone every year for the last 30 years wishes they could do better, which is improve forecasting, right? Mm-hmm. It's like on every one of these surveys you see, you'll say, oh, my problem is bad forecasting. I mean, it's almost a cliche, right, at this point. So I would say... Related to I wish I could do forecasting better is it's this demand sense, improve responsiveness to a demand change. I think if companies could think about turning that problem around and saying, look, there's a set of demand, consumer behaviors around the world, maybe at certain locations, retail locations, stores, geographies, countries, we'll never be able to predict. So how do we massively improve our agility and responsiveness to demand? And let's think about that from a network perspective versus from a functional silo of who's accountable for sales, who's accountable for manufacturing. This is, it's a paradigm shift, right? And that companies that can really look outside in on this and say, let's just look in an integrated holistic way. What are the right signals around demand changes? Could be orders, could be other signals. And let's do everything we can to improve the responsiveness of our supply chain to those target markets, to those demand changes. And let's do it in a way that brings our whole supply network along, not just 
one manufacturing plant or one product group. That kind of thinking, I think, will lead to the right innovation that really moves the needle, right? That sort of gives the wow experience for a consumer or for a business in terms of service level and allows for innovation that brings everyone along versus sort of pieces of innovation here and there that then don't link together in a way that actually makes enough of a difference in terms of overall supply chain performance. When you think about the scale of a lot of these companies, especially as they get bigger, especially as they get into new markets, it really does have to be sustainable innovation that they create. It can't just be one small piece and then they move on. That's right. And if you look at innovators and key brands and key industries that, you know, the Gardner Group would recognize as, say, top 25, for example, our Laura Ceri from Supply Chain Insights does this kind of mapping of key performance indicators from a supply chain perspective over multiple years. What you see is not any linear lines. You see movements where one gain was made in one metric, and then there was a fall down in another area. So days of inventory increased, but maybe with economic growth and improved profitability. And oftentimes, companies can't sustain the improvement over time. And I do think that understanding sources of variability, taking a network-based approach, and then becoming more responsive is the way to sustain the supply chain improvements. And it no longer can be just around cost and efficiency. That's the false path to sustainable improvement. Great. Well, thank you very much for your thoughts, Richard. Here's to an exciting 2016 and beyond. I'm excited. Thanks, Matt, for your time. You've been listening to Supply Chain Radio. 